Welcome to the Sluffer Podcast. I'm your host, Daniel Allen Nolan. Today we will explore and listen to some lost writings I recently stumbled upon. They are a line of breadcrumbs back to some experiences and events that I've had in my life. They're mostly honest, and they're mostly true, but they could also be total bullshit. Today's episode, Relying on Memories. Let's do this. Slower. The sun is low, casting its light determinately through a thick haze of silhouetting morning fog. Everywhere I look, things to appear to be desolate and disconnected. Even the graffiti seems to have withdrawn, fading from the walls of the factories as I pass along my usual route. Slowly the gauze of the morning mist lifts and everything comes into focus, stained, filthy, and inherently normal. Inside it seems different, very different. I refer to my breathing, the time it takes me to recognize familiar objects and the pace at which I run. All sounds are mute, lost deep in my head. When I voice aloud, it is frail and distant. I am starting to become aware and increasingly more concerned. Soon, panic will grab a hold and I will be appointed to a condition of maddening distress, irreconcilable, panic-stricken roaming the empty streets, searching and praying for remedy and forgiveness. I force now a slower pace, immediately reconnecting. The ground is stable. My lungs feel strong, hearing precisely where I am. I am able to conquer all worlds, regardless of how insidious these sleeping streets pretend to be. in vain. Daunted life, my sweet, as I saddle up next to a frail, balding woman, with a tone implying I may have been offering her a chocolate. Her response is unveiling, most likely too distracted by the pigeons determining what is gravel and what is food. The trembling in her hands is subtle and passionate. Her skin, though concerningly transparent, shows very little signs of a turbulent life. I study the small lines around her milky eyes, haunting in somewhere other than here. It's not polite to stare, she says, startling me back to embarrassment, and I am not your sweet. I foolishly try explaining myself that I was merely making small talk, since we had a while until the next train would arrive. So complimenting you would be in vain? I ask in spite, quickly regretting that I have questioned her for a second time, knowing fully that I will be scolded again into silence. It's cancer. The chemo wouldn't take. I am dying. The pause is lengthy, matter of fact and chilling. Like her eyes, I truly wished I were somewhere other than here, or at least have kept my mouth shut. I am saddened to hear that, I respond, trying my hardest not to sound too insincere, although she probably is quite immune to all the awkward silences that have been peppering her since the discovery of her plight. A lesson that surely as quickly nauseates as surely it disappoints. Have you ever read The Pearl by Steinbeck? I ask. To my surprise, a small smile starts to escape from the sides of her pale cheeks. She positions toward me slowly, 
pausing a moment with her eyes fixed on mine, forcing a dramatic anticipation on the reply. It was my favorite book as a child, she says. The scope of uncertainty has never been grander than this. From the moment I heard her say the words, as a child, the enormity of her fate, the mystery of her past and unrelenting present demise came pooling around me in an almost suffocating flash. Startled, I nod in reply with much difficulty. One of mine, too. I arrogantly believe, for a moment, this is our common thread. But then I realistically decide to dismiss this as pure coincidence. We engage in conversation over the next 40 minutes, telling each other of our favorite books read, past homes and past loves, our passion for food, laughter and music, first dances and lost dreams. We even speak of death. The ultimate tragedy of this chance meeting is not the uncelebrated and soon to be forgotten death of an extraordinary woman. Not even in the short minutes that I was given to try and fully harvest the complexity and elegance of her life lay the loom of this linen's disaccord. The tragedy falls within my thoughtlessness to not even ask what her name was. Forty minutes, dreams, desires, cancer. I know her now only by the name of Pearl after her favorite book when she was a child. When her time came to part, I said my goodbye and started to walk away. She smiled kindly and put her hand up in a halting fashion as to stop me for one final thought. Daunting indeed, my sweet, she whispered. one may battle in the face of being noticed for his just-above-average talents. Cherry sauce on vanilla, a patch of dead grass, a hollow egg. Monsoons of Autumn We drive the 145 miles back home with the radio off. Our mother is in an institution after a series of small headaches that eventually leads to her delusional paranoia. The hospital sits far back off the highway looking like a millionaire's estate until you reach the gates and drive somberly through the listless grounds. We are not certain when she will be well enough to come back home and care for my sister, Papa, and I. To pass the time, Elsa and I taunt each other, as children often do, slapping one another's arms and poking at each other's face. Up in front, our father remains still in his seat while he determinably drives us back home. She jabs at my ear and I retaliate squarely on her left cheek, bringing us both to wrestle and scream misbehavingly. My father's hand, callous and thick from working long days at the factory, bolts violently across the back seat. The sheer force sends me smashing into my sister, who is now gasping for breath in frightened disbelief. Inside the car lies an uncertain calm and moments later, I am gently holding Elsa's hand as she sobs silently, staring down into her lap. The swelling on my face starts to sting and I slowly move my jaw side to side in attempt to fight back my own urge to cry. We now keep ever so quiet so that we will not have to be reminded ever again. The remainder of the ride home was just a wash of autumn colors, ebbing at the sides of our vision. Not once did we look out the windows. My sister and I already knew just how far away we were from the comforts of our past. 
overwhelmed by the grief and mounting burden of raising two children without the companionship and love of their mother, he committed suicide. As for Elsa and I, we were fortunate enough to be sent to a foster home not far from the town where we were growing up. Our new parents were a kindly older couple with two boys of their own and an adopted daughter, Millie, who was named for her mother who died while giving birth. We liked Millie. As for being robbed so young of her comforts too, she understood. She was one of us. Elsa and I never fought anymore, not since that one detracted afternoon in the car with Papa. Forgiven, but not forgotten. Neither of us will say it, but in losing him we also lost her, and never will we yearn for our past, for that is lost now too. The Bells of Acorn Lane Bats have flown by my door every night since Bernie died. I cannot explain why, other than that one of these bats must be Bernie. It sounds ridiculous, but bats are not supposed to be living in these parts, especially ones that know how to ring a doorbell. The first time it happened, I thought it had to be a prank, since this town is so small and the announcement of Bernie's death was in the local gazette. I figured some teenagers had read this and thought it would be funny to torment the lonely old man who lives at 1123 Acorn Lane. The house with the wooden cutouts of cottontail bunnies and fat ladies bending over in their garden. I would search the area with my flashlight and listen closely to see if I could hear the distant laughter of juvenile success. But all I heard was the occasional dog barking or a truck passing on the interstate just past the other side of the high school. Oh in the flapping of bats. At first I tried to convince myself that they were blackbirds that may have been eating the berries and were drinking themselves into night dementia. But it wasn't until I smacked one down with a broom did I realize they were actually bats. There were probably four to five of them flying around the overhang of the porch. This still didn't explain the doorbell ringing every 10 to 15 minutes, which usually started at about 10 o'clock and ended just before midnight. It has been almost 12 years since Bernie's passing and the bell ringing continues to this day. I take that time to sit and reflect upon all the wonderful times she and I shared together while I hold a photo of Bernie in one hand and a broom in the other, trying to keep my heart open as I have my mind. I wish you were my sister. With eyes closed, I pull my mouth slowly away from hers, feeling heady like it was our first kiss all over again. I hear several comments of disapproval through all the uncomfortable titter and gasping disgust. This small group of horrified onlookers just witnessed me French kissing my sister. Or so they thought. My girlfriend and I are similar in many ways. We are thin-framed, dark-haired, blue-eyed, and obviously sharing the same sick sense of humor. We are often told we look like brother and sister, which is why I often introduce her just as that. This arrangement only works with old friends and unfamiliar crowds. One day, while shopping with my mother, we bumped into a couple from a party we attended the night before. They were amongst the lucky few to be in the audience at the time of our ode to incestuous theater. With some nervous hesitation, they walked up and gave us a hello. After some idle chatter about the evening before, I interrupt and say, I'd like you to meet my mother. 
While they were exchanging their nice-to-meet-yous and the pleasure's all mine, my girlfriend and I start to kiss, ending in a display where we feverishly prod each other's mouth with our tongues. Needless to say, their expressions were priceless when my mother chirped in with, Oh, you two, get a room. After a bemusing display of affection proving us with a strong family bond, we said goodbye and finished up our shopping. Unaware of our deceitful sibling thralls, all my mother could say about the bewildered couple was, those two aren't going to last. Saturday bike rides. I just couldn't keep up. My mother and father were so far ahead of me up the road and my breathing was starting to get labored. Was it panic? I really couldn't place the feeling I was starting to have, that gray hump spreading just above the navel. It was similar to the feeling I would get when someone was intently admiring a drawing I had shown them or reading a story that I had written. Over their shoulder, I would hover behind them with this guttural electricity surging through me. This intoxication was far and few in between, unlike the creeping dread, for lack of a better description, that was starting to envelop me now on this Saturday bike ride with my parents. Later in life, I would recognize that both abandonment and adoration were indiscernible in my emotional landscape. A sedate vanishing point with familiar roads. That is all for this episode of Reline on Memories. Thank you for listening to the Sluffer Podcast. We'll see you on the next episode.